By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Mindfulness isn't sort of an indulgent rest. You know, it's not like deep relaxation. Yeah. It's it's almost gym for the mind. So you're building that mental muscle to be able to notice where your mind is, notice if it's helpful for you or not, and then bring it back to now. We are speaking for the second time to Dr. Julie Smith, who is a clinical psychologist and the author of the best-selling book, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? And her book and all of her work is absolutely fantastic and really helps break down kind of the various mental health issues that basically everyone struggles with into an understandable form with lots of actionable solutions as well. I think what people are referring to is worry, right? So it's that kind of, I'm thinking about things way too much. I'm going round and round in circles. It's almost like that kind of thought washing machine, isn't it? Where you're just churning it over and over. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how to manage stress and anxiety. We talk a lot about overthinking and we talk about burnout. And along the way, we explore emotions, we explore challenging our limiting beliefs, and we explore strategies for how you can think about thoughts and feelings, the ability to hold thoughts and feelings at arm's length, and how we can get more perspective on whatever problems that we're struggling with. Most things that are sort of meaningful or feel like achievements involve discomfort on the way. So if you're not willing to make yourself feel vulnerable and uncomfortable, you kind of close a lot of doors to yourself, I think. This episode is sponsored by Kajabi, and they've actually got something really valuable for all of our deep dive listeners. Now, if you haven't heard of Kajabi, it's basically a platform that helps creators diversify their revenue with courses and membership sites and communities and podcasts and coaching tools. So it's one of the best places for creators and entrepreneurs to build a sustainable business. We started using Kajabi earlier this year, and as soon as we started using it, we were like, oh my God, why haven't we been using this product for the last three years? It's got everything you'd possibly need for running an online course or hosting an online community or building an online coaching business. And it essentially makes it really easy to run your entire online business from payments to marketing tools to analytics. Kajabi has everything that we creators need all in one place. And actually, you don't necessarily need a huge audience to generate a sustainable income. A creator on Kajabi can, for example, make $100,000 by converting just 350 customers a year, depending on your price points. And in fact, there are creators on the platform that are making millions of dollars every year with fewer than 100,000 followers across the social media platforms. We've been using Kajabi to host all of our online courses since the start of 2023, from our $1 part-time YouTuber foundations to help people start off on their YouTube journey, all the way up to our $5,000 package for the part-time YouTuber Accelerator, which gives you access to me and my team. And Kajabi does not take any cut of what you earn. Creators keep and own everything. The way Kajabi makes money is through the monthly subscription fee. And even though we generate like literally millions of dollars every year from Kajabi, we're still only paying them a couple of hundred dollars a year. And actually in their lifetime, Kajabi have paid out over $6 billion to creators, that's billion with a B, and over a thousand creators have become millionaires through products on the platform. Now, back in May 2023, I did a keynote at a Kajabi in real life, Kajabi Heroes event in Austin, Texas. And in that keynote, I talked about the exact steps that I used to grow my business from zero to over two and a half million dollars per year from course revenue alone. Now, people paid for the pretty expensive tickets to watch this keynote at the Kajabi Hero live event. But as an exclusive deal for deep dive listeners, Kajabi have very kindly offered to provide the recording of that keynote completely for free to anyone who listens to this podcast. So if you're interested in getting completely free access to that keynote, just head over to kajabi.com forward slash Ali. That's kajabi.com forward slash A-L-I. And that'll be linked in the show notes and the video description as well. You just enter your email address and then you will get the recording of that keynote completely for free, whether or not you ever become a Kajabi customer. So thank you so much to Kajabi for sponsoring this episode. 
This season is once again being sponsored very kindly by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for investment advice uh, because they see that I've made money and I've made videos talking about where I'm investing that money. The thing that Warren Buffett and basically everyone who's sensible in the space recommends, which is to invest in broad stock market index funds, which you can do completely for free using Trading212. Trading212 is a fantastic app that lets you invest in stocks and shares and funds in a commission-free fashion. And they've got a bunch of features which are really helpful, which is why I personally use Trading212 to manage a portion of my portfolio. So firstly, they've got this great pies and auto invest feature. So if you're interested in potentially getting into investing, what you can do is you can browse the different pies that different people have created on the platform. So you might get like a hedge fund trader who's gone onto the platform and has created a pie of investments, having done a bunch of research and stuff. And that pie might be like, I don't know, 20% Apple, 20% Tesla, 10% this, 10% that, but it's generally way more complicated than that. And you can see the performance of that particular pie of stocks and shares and funds. And then if you want to copy that pie into your own account, you can just copy and paste it directly in. And then you can invest any amount of money and it will automatically split it according to the allocation in the pie. So if you wanted to just play around with hundred pounds and you were like, okay, that pie looks good. It will split out that hundred pounds based on the allocations of the pie, which is pretty sick. They've also recently added support for multi-currency accounts. Now this is really helpful because for example, if you invest in the S&P 500, which is a US based index fund, then you won't get hit with all the various foreign exchange fees. If for example, you're investing from the UK like I do. And if you have an invest or an ISA account, then Trading212 also gives you daily interest on your uninvested cash in pounds or euros or US dollars. So if any of that sounds up your street, then do please hit the link in the video description or in the show notes, and that will let you sign up to Trading212. And if you use that link, you will also get a completely free share up to the value of £100. So it's literally free money, so you might as well. So thank you so much Trading212 for sponsoring this episode. Right, so recently I've started to think a lot about my health and that's why I'm very excited to say that this episode is brought to you by Huel. Now I've been using Huel since 2017, since my fifth year of medical school, but since interviewing the founder Julian Hearn on this podcast in season one and hearing the origin story of Huel and how it came together, Huel has now become a staple part of my life. Now if you haven't heard of it, Huel is essentially a meal in a bottle. So each little bottle is like a shake that has 400 calories, 22 grams of protein and a good balance of carbs and fats and fiber, along with 26 different vitamins and minerals. And obviously when it comes to health, there is nothing that beats the gold standard, which is a healthy, nutritional, freshly prepared meal that has like the perfect balance of all the things. But if you lead a particularly busy or hectic lifestyle like I sometimes do, it can be hard to make the time in our schedules to get this absolute gold standard meal, which is why I personally like using Huel for those moments of my day or of my life where I don't quite have time to cook. I don't quite have time to like try and go to like a gourmet restaurant and sort of get some kind of healthy meal. I just want something that covers my bases in terms of the macros that I need. And that's pretty tasty as well. The Huel ready to drink bottles come in eight different flavors. My favorite ones are banana and salted caramel. So if you find those, you should check those out. And if you're interested in trying these out, then head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And with your first order, you'll also get a free shaker if you want the Huel powdered version. And you'll also get a free t-shirt. These are quite nice t-shirts. They fit very well. They make the biceps look a lot bigger. So thank you so much, Huel, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been Almost two years to the day since we recorded our first episode. And you haven't aged today. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> I think it's the retinoids. Um, but your life has changed a lot in that time. Yeah, well, yes and no in some way. You know, I guess um, you, you might or might not relate to this because you're kind of living the life. Uh, um, whereas for me, when I kind of started all this, I already had children and a family and stuff. So um, while life has changed to a degree, it's also a lot the same. Mm. You know, I'm still getting up, taking the kids to school, trying to do some sense of work within those school hours and then being mum again in the afternoon and kind of, and then, you know, working into the night to try and create some sort of content yeah. without looking too tired. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that feels a lot the same, but um, you get to do all this really exciting, interesting stuff, like come and see people like you and yeah. like have really fun chats. And 
um, yeah, doing kind of interesting stuff. So, yeah. So what, like, I've, I've seen you, you've been on a bunch of TV shows and stuff. Like the book has absolutely exploded in like sales numbers and it seems to consistently be on the bestseller lists. And that's just like a level of success that is really rare in the book publishing world. Yeah. So how's that kind of rollercoaster been? Uh, it's been amazing. It kind of took on a life of its own. And um, I think, I look, how weird is this? So I looked last week and, and it was, I think it was like 70 weeks or something, 70 something weeks in in the top 10. Um, and yesterday I forgot to get a paper and have a look. So <laughs> that is something to think of as you're, as you're about to publish your book that, yeah. you know, like something that feels huge in the beginning and feels like it would be a marker of success or not. Um, later on, you kind of forget to even look because mm. um, not that the shine comes off things. I'm so grateful and it's been incredible. It still feels good to know that it's, you know, getting into the hands of people. Um, honestly, I think the most, it almost sounds a bit cheesy, but is true. The most satisfying moments I've had have been speaking to individuals who've read it and found it useful. So mm. um, I imagined that moment that you see the book and, you know, the Sunday Times would just be momentous. And But that moment ends really quickly. You know, it's a matter of seconds and then it's in the past and and it's will it be in the next week or will it so it's always you know you're always looking to the past or the future it's never the right now so uh, while it feels good to know that it's doing well and it's in there some of the conversations I've had where I've done sort of live events or talks and things people queue up at the end to come and see me and and they want to tell me their story where they've been what's happened to them and how it might just be one part of the book that really shifted something for them and just kind of shifted their their trajectory a little bit. Yeah. And and then it's then made such a difference over time that they, you know, they will queue up for an hour to come and speak to me and say, thank you. You know, and those, you know, those conversations are just momentous for me and I hold on to them. And um, yeah, because that's, I never wanted to write the book for the, for the sake of it. I wanted to do something that was helpful and stick to the reason I'd started in the first place. So yeah. Um, yeah, those conversations genuinely sort of hit me and stay with me for sure. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think there's definitely something there around, um, uh, you know, the things that bring the most meaning are when, we, when we're when we in service to others. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of us, me included, <laughs> very much so chase like the achievement accolade of like, oh, hit, hit, hitting the bestseller list. But then as you said, it's just sort of a flash in the pan. It's like, cool, whatever. Yeah. But it's, I guess, kind of seeing that impact is the thing that really, really moves you. Yeah. I imagine that moment of, you know, if that ever happened, that I would be, you know, just overwhelmed with emotion and, you know, drop to the floor or whatever. And there would be this sort of Hollywood moment. Mm -hmm. And it just really wasn't like that. It was sort of, yeah, cool. Because um, that bit's sort of out of your hands in some ways. While you can do everything you can do um, to help that, it's just one marker of success. You know, I could, I could probably sell that many. But everyone who bought it hated it. But the fact that people come up and say, thanks. Yeah. I found it so helpful that I bought three for my family at Christmas. And yeah. that's, you know, yes, kind of thing. That's a good vibe. So what's, what sort of stories do you hear about the book? Like what what what, what kind of things do people say that make you feel, yes? Um, do you know what? Because it's obviously a book about mental health and tips that come from therapy, it's often people who have really quite painful stories and it's not, it's, I think I annoy the staff actually from these events where people will queue up to kind of come and say hello at the end. And it's not just a, an average, hi, thanks for the book, bye kind of situation. Um, 
when somebody wants to, you know, it's queued that long to say, I want to just share something with you. And it's often the deepest, darkest moments of their lives that the book might have helped them through in a very, even in a small way. Um, you can't take two minutes over that. You've got to take your time. And and often people, at these events, people are like, come on, you need to get through. And I'm like, yeah. no, you take your time. You yeah. you know, these people have um, been kind enough to, to, you know, buy the book and, and then took you up to say, um, thank you. But yeah, often those stories are around being in a really dark place and often not knowing where to turn as well. That the reality is, however much I'd like everybody to have access to therapy or something like it, they don't for lots of different reasons. Um, and, and often it's those people who haven't had access to something like that or that it's not been enough for them. You know, if you, if you get your, I don't know, six or 12 allotted sessions of the NHS and then you don't have access to anything beyond that, yeah. where else do you go and what do you do? So um, sometimes it's been in addition to something. Mm. So I guess that's, that's kind of surprising to me that, I mean, I mean, for me, reading something in a book can just completely change my kind of belief or a decision or an action and therefore completely change my life. And people kind of joke sometimes, you know, I'll do a lot of videos being like, this book changed my life because they genuinely did because it changed something. So mm. that's not something substantial. But before you said that, I, I, I would have thought that, oh, obviously, like a book can't replace like quote, real therapy. Um, but it seems like people are getting some value from reading a thing and sort of is is it helping them reframe a thought pattern or like what's what's going on yeah. that they're finding it so helpful even if they've tried therapy before? Uh, yeah, and, and you're right, it can't replace therapy and it's, it's really um, an insight to some of the things you could learn in therapy that you could take on yourself if you kind of practice and reflect on those things and, you know, use journaling to kind of keep learning those skills and stuff like that. Um, but... There's still a lot to therapy that is so much more than that. So, um, you know, what I'd love to give therapy to everybody, <laughs> it is impossible for that to happen. Um, but yeah, it kind of, if it can help in any small way, then it's it's worth doing, I think. Nice. One of the things that I've, so I was, I was flicking through this um, the other day, filled out this um, feeling, feeling wheel. Mm. Um, and me and one of our team members were doing it to be like, and I was trying to figure out like, what are the, the, the feelings that I felt in the last week or so? Yeah. Because um, I guess since the last time we did, we, we did the interview, one thing that I've been, like I've been, I've been seeing a therapist as well and trying to get more in touch with my emotions and trying to sort of feel, feel feelings in the body rather than yeah. just sort of walking around with them in the mind. And you know, when people would ask me, how, how do you feel? I'd be like, what? Like that, that, that sort of question, I, 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 I still find very hard to compute almost. Yeah. But then seeing like the feelings wheel, I wonder if you can just like describe what is the feelings wheel and like what could be helpful about it to, mm. to people. Well, actually, that's a really common um, experience where, you know, some people are in touch with, more in touch with their thought processes. So you'll ask them what they feel and they'll say, well, I'm thinking that, da, 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 and they're yep. kind of reeling off the thoughts to you. Or, you know, you'll ask them what emotion is present and they'll say, well, actually I've got butterflies in my tummy or um, I'm really tense. And so they're more in touch with the physical sensations and emotion. And it's all part of the same experience, right? And um, I think I mentioned the book about it being kind of, it's almost like weaves in a basket. They're all aspects of the same experience but you don't necessarily experience the weaves, you experience the whole basket. And so you you get this kind of sensation, but you don't necessarily have words to describe that. Mm. And, and when we separate it out into, you know, thoughts, physical sensations, emotions, 
some people just don't have the vocab to give granularity to, you know, they might have happy, sad, angry, frustrated, but they might not have the vocab to kind of give that any nuance or the fine detail that the slight difference between the frustration you feel in a queue to the frustration you feel, um, I don't know, waiting for some really um, important medical results or something like that. They're different feelings, right? But but sometimes we kind of use the same words to, for different um, scenarios or feelings because we don't have the vocab. So the feelings will... Can't remember the lady's name now. It's it's in there. Wilcox, um, came up there. Yes, that's it. So, um, but it's really just a way of kind of packing in lots of different vocabulary that you can use to describe. Sometimes you just need a little prompt, right? Mm. You just oh yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, that really kind of resonates with you because sometimes when you hear the word, you kind of have an understanding about what that feels like, but you wouldn't necessarily come up with it. But it's a really important skill actually to be able to. Um, give words to feelings so that your brain can kind of help you to predict situations and yeah. and understand them in kind of finer detail so yeah. It's, yeah it's really useful yeah so it's like you know in the middle we've got like the six six key emotions i guess or like of anger disgust sad happy surprise fear mm. and then you know around around the outside if we look at happy for example there's optimistic and intimate peaceful powerful accepted proud interested, joyful, ecstatic, amused, inquisitive, important, confident, respected, fulfilled. And, you know, I was, I was going through and thinking of like, which of these things have I felt in the last week or so? Um, and I was sort of when I when I did, I did this exercise a few months ago, I highlighted inspired, playful, hopeful, loving, fulfilled, respected, confident, important, inquisitive, amused, liberated, energetic, eager. And I was like, all of these were the happy ones, but worried was a, a sort of leads to anxious, which leads to fear, which was interesting to me. And I realized I did have periods of infuriated and irritated, which is sort of a subset of frustrated, which is a subset of angry. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have kind of known, I was like, oh, I guess I was I, sort of anxious equals fear and like frustrated and kind of irritated equals angry. Mm -hmm. There was something about seeing it in the wheel that was like, yeah, but I didn't quite realize that. I was like, oh, I am feeling fear. Yeah, because sometimes there's social pressure around or social expectations around certain emotions as well, aren't there? Sometimes attached to gender. So, you know, um, some people who um, maybe for men, for example, who don't feel that it's acceptable for them to feel fear might use a very different label. Like you say, that, that in the wheel, you can see that it is connected to fear, but they might use a different label because yeah. it feels slightly associated with something different. Um, and if it, Or it feels more acceptable to say out loud. Um and and maybe for women that would be more around anger actually that um, lots of women wouldn't use the word angry mm. but they might use something else um, like frustrated or something um, that feels a bit more acceptable um, mm. a bit more kind of nicey nicey yeah what do you think is the so well well one thing I'm still trying to I guess figure out is on the one hand there's the view that feelings are not facts and feelings are just you know these sensations that arise in the body that the mind then gives color gives color to and you know if you're feeling angry it's because it's not a, it's not actually that something has happened that that has it, it's it's not a law of physics that you should feel angry in the moment it's a story that you're telling yourself about how that person shouldn't have done the thing which makes you feel angry mm. so that's like one side of it which i think i drank the kool-aid of that quite a lot where it's like oh i mean feelings are just meaningless right because i mean feelings are not facts and i can i can control my narrative and therefore control my feelings then on the other side, there's the whole idea that like actually feelings tell us something valuable and, you know, we should be mindful of 
our feelings. But then people will then get there's the risk that people then get too attached to the fact that they feel angry, not realizing that actually you could potentially potentially change that. Mm. Do you get what I'm? I want to get it. Like I'm, I'm not yeah. quite sure what there's. There's some sort of balance between these two extremes. I think. Yeah, yeah, because there's a sort of sense that um, you can go down the road that okay, well, if my feelings aren't facts, then can I trust them at all, and are they of any particular use to me? And, and the answer is yes, because you know we we have to accept that okay, the brain's function is is trying to. Um, help you generate meaning from whatever's going on. So it's trying to help you understand what's going on in your environment, the demands that are placed on you, all of those things. But it only has so much to go on, right? It's only got so many clues. It kind of assesses the situation from your inner world and your biology and what's going on and your blood pressure and your heart rate and all those things and makes an assessment about, you know, how we're feeling, but also from things that are going on around us. Um, but it doesn't always have all the data, and so it has to kind of make a best guess and it offers that up to you in in the form of sensations and feelings. And um, so it's got a lot to say because your brain's pretty brilliant at coming up with assessments. And sometimes those early feelings can be the most valuable, right, when we listen to them. Um, so I think we have to, you know, listen to our emotions as we would listen to any message and hold it lightly. You know, except that it's, okay, this is one possible version of this reality and that it's the first feeling I got. So I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to also stay open to other perspectives or the rest of experience. And and so just because it's not the one truth doesn't mean it has to be completely disregarded. You know, there are lots of um, really valuable things that aren't the be all and end all. So it's, you know, holding it as valuable, but realizing that if we if we blinker ourselves and only look at that as the, you know, possible truth, we're really restricting ourselves there. And you can really go down a hellhole in some ways if your thoughts are distressing or painful and that kind of thing. Mm. And I guess that's a skill that people learn in therapy or through reading the yeah. book and through practicing, like this ability to hold the feeling but hold it lightly. Yeah. And it's not easy, right? I think the, you know, the whole thing about mindfulness is, you know, I think people get the idea of the mindfulness that it's, you've got to go and sit under a tree somewhere and, you know, in Bali or, you know, and kind of live that life. And, and it's very goal orientated, but actually you can live mindfully in that way. And that's often the things that are taught in therapy around um, noticing and observing your experience. Okay. So I'm in this scenario, this feeling is coming over me. I can feel it, you know, in in this part of my body or that part of my body, and I notice these thoughts are coming in, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna allow that to be here for a minute, and I'm just gonna allow the next experience to wash over me, and I'm gonna see how that goes. So you're not sort of grasping onto it for dear life, but you're also not pushing it away. You're kind of allowing it to be present. And when you don't either grasp it hard or, or push it away, it kind of takes its natural course and it washes over you and it moves past you, right? So. Um, those are often the skills that are kind of taught. And I talk a lot about that kind of thing in the book and in my videos and stuff where, because it's quite a difficult concept, right? To to grasp. It's like, well, what do I do? How do I make it go away then? Mm -hmm. And the idea is you don't have to make it go away if you can be open to experience, even if it's unpleasant or negative or uncomfortable. And often when you stop fighting against it, that takes some of the power out of it anyway.
Is it kind of like if you're walking outside and it starts to rain, then yeah. you could be like, oh, why is it raining? Uh, yeah. It's so annoying. Or you yeah. could be like, well, I guess it's raining. Cool. And yeah. not really ascribe much, any, any more meaning than that to it. And and you can still protect yourself from painful feelings to a yeah. degree, right? So you could choose, okay, I'm never going to go out when it's raining, which is probably not going to be helpful in you living a valued life or a life that is, you know, important to you. Um, but you could say, well, I'm going to go out, but I'm going to take my umbrella and my coat. And so I'm going to do what I can to kind of ease my way through this day so that it doesn't completely overwhelm me, but I'm still going to go through the rain. Mm. Nice. So if like someone gets social anxiety, for example, yeah. one option is like, cool, I'm just never going to be in social situations, yeah. which is probably not a particularly <laughs> helpful way of, of living. Um, but I guess the raid coat analogy is like, cool, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, these yeah. feelings are going to wash over me. I'm going to recognize them for what they are. Their feelings are going to hold them lightly. And here are some strategies that I can use to deal with them as they arise. Yeah, for sure. So when I started doing um, <laughs> like live TV and stuff like that, I realized that if I said no to that, it would be out of fear Ooh. and that I had to practice what I preach right so this is why I kept doing it and kept saying yes to it and and so I had to kind of you know do that but I, I recognized that when I felt anxious before you know the sort of few seconds before they say you're live um I could put some skills in place so that would be my you know my jacket and my umbrella are uh, okay I'm going to do this because it's meaningful to me to um hold sort of courage as a value and, and challenge myself and push myself. So I'm living a valued life, you know, based on what matters most to me. And I'm just going to take these skills along to make it easier. Um, so I would, you know, I, um, I will, you do the sort of physiological style or something a few seconds before, just brilliant, really, really helps. Um, or I'll do lots of reframing as well. If I'm tempted to, you know, often I'll wake up in the hotel room that morning and think, why am I putting myself through this? And then immediately allow that thought to be there, but reframe it and come in with, this is really exciting. It's a challenge. It's really small in comparison to most things in the world. Um, and we'll get through if I, you know, fall on the stage and humiliate myself, I'll have my own back. So, you know, putting all those little things in place, mm. nobody can physically see those things. They're all skills that happen kind of in here. Um, but they allow me to then do something that is living in line with my values. Love it. What's a physiological sigh? Uh, so that's... Um, uh, just a breathing technique. So you um, you take a, a, a large in-breath and then just when you feel like your lungs are full, you take in another small breath and then you do a long sort of vigorous out-breath. So, <laughs> so it's allowing okay. that out-breath to be longer than the in-breath. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk about lots of, it's just one of the different ways to kind of do slow breathing techniques, um, um, but they're all in the book. Um, what do yeah. they do? Like What's the, the theory behind it? So the idea is you're not only you're kind of slowing your heart rate down, but when you take that extra in breath, that you're opening up the little sacs in your lungs a little bit wider. So you're actually getting rid of carbon, carbon dioxide more efficiently than you would be. Mm. Um, so it helps you to sort of calm the system. And honestly, it, you know, those really small things, no one can even see you're doing it, but it makes a, a, enough of a difference that you bring anxiety. So you're not trying to eradicate anxiety ever. Yeah. You're just trying to bring it down to a level of intensity that you can really focus on what you're doing and perform at your best. So yeah. I wouldn't want to be totally relaxed when I'm you know, on live TV. I want to be alert and I want to be thinking well and performing at my best, but I also don't want to be completely overwhelmed and catastrophizing. I want to be kind of in the zone. So it just helps to, you know, only a few breaths, it helps you to really kind of get in the zone and then do what you do. And it sounds, so in, in that moment, I guess you could tell yourself the story that 
oh my God, I'm feeling some level of anxiety on live TV. I'm not cut out for this. Why did I do this? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, this yeah. is not for me. But I guess you're like, no, it's fine to, to feel yeah. some level of anxiety as long as it's not hindering my performance too much. Yeah, and that's what the mindfulness stuff does really is it changes your relationship with all emotional experience because you're accepting all of it, the good and the bad or the, you know, comfortable and uncomfortable, should I say, um, as just a part of being human and it's part of the human experience. So you're kind of allowing that to be there. So, okay, when I do this, I notice those sensations, my heart pounds just beforehand and, you know, I'm tense and and I associate that with anxiety and excitement. I'm going to hold that and I'm going to go for it. So it's the sort of um, long-winded way of saying feel the fear and do it anyway. Nice. <laughs> um, one question on this front. Um, so one thing that I struggle with in my relationship, for example, is that if, um, let's call her Jane, if if Jane is upset with something that I have con- I have done in some kind of way, yeah. then I'll feel this strong thing of like, oh no, I, I, I need to change my behavior. I need to sort of do something differently to make her not feel upset. And whenever I have that thought, I'm always like, Ugh, I feel, it feels kind of weird because it's like, I can't make anyone not upset. And actually this thing that I'm, I have done is like something that I actually do value and maybe it's just okay that she's upset. And I was talking to my sister-in-law about this and, you know, in the, in the context of, you know, she was saying well, when her husband leaves on a business trip, she, she feels sad. And I was like, oh, but then like, you know, why is he going on these business trips? And she was like, oh, well, I mean, I, I it, it's, it's okay that I feel sad. Of course I'm going to feel sad, but like, that doesn't mean he shouldn't go. And yeah. that was kind of like a weird thing for me because in my mind, it's like managing someone else's emotions sort of feels like my job. But whenever I think that, I'm like, no, that's just not the way. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah, and and that makes relationships then feel difficult if you have to make sure they feel a certain way all of the time because it's impossible to control that, right? Yeah. Because there'll be certain emotions that come up, not because of you, but because of something else. Mm. Um, and then it all feels very uncontrollable. Um, and, and and it's a sign, isn't it, that if you if you feel uncomfortable with their distress, in some ways that's a sign of how much you care for someone. Mm. So it's it's okay to kind of hold that without acting on it. Or just to communicate, you know, whenever I see you upset, I have that urge to try my best to make it all go away. Um, but sometimes that isn't even what's necessary, is it? It's that, you know, people often get that when someone's crying. Yeah. So, you know, you get that sort of, oh, I've got to make this go away. And, and pe- that's when people say things that aren't necessarily helpful because um, they might say something that kind of minimizes the distress or the problem. And um, and what they're trying to do is immediately get the person to stop crying because their distress feels uncomfortable to us. Mm. Um, and actually what they need to do is feel validated. Yeah, this is painful. Wow, this is okay. You know, I've got your back. I'm here for you. We'll walk through this together. And then the emotion will come down naturally anyway. So when you're both willing to contain that and sit with that, you know, if you go to therapy, for example, and you feel lots of raw emotion and the tears are coming and uh, a therapist won't try to stop you from crying, they will sit with you through that and help you to contain that safely so that it takes its natural course. And and at some point um, that will tail off and, and you'll feel something different. And then you're on to the next experience. Yeah, I think whenever I see someone crying, I always feel like, oh, this is a problem that I must solve. And yeah. it's like the natural urge to be like, oh, 
Yeah. We do something. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you often even cause it because, you know, if someone's really tense and anxious or if they've had a terrible day yeah. and then you go in for a hug and then whoosh, it all comes out. And, yeah. and often that's because that person's been holding on to lots of stuff the whole time. And the minute someone shows compassion and care, they feel safe enough to sort of release whatever emotion is there. And so that can sometimes come out in tears. And then you think, I oh, know I've caused it. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, go near you or what's going on. And then you start sort of questioning yourself about what you should do. And that's often based around the want to control the, the emotions of the situation yeah. rather than allowing whatever comes up to just be. Mm. And then communicating that, do you know what, whatever we feel, we're just going to be curious about that. And we're going to, you know, um, that's another thing that comes up a lot in therapy um, is turning from judgment to curiosity. So rather than thinking a certain emotion needs, a certain emotion needs to be squashed or pushed away, yeah. we're just going to be curious about all of them. What's that? What's this about? Why is this? What is this feeling? And why is it here? And what's, what does that show us? And then maybe it doesn't show us anything. Maybe we just let it pass. Mm. Like you were saying, it's it's like a piece of information that you hold lightly to be like, huh, I wonder yeah. if I should, you know, change something based on this or not. Yeah. Like sometimes your partner's upset because there's something going on in the relationship and sometimes they're upset because they're having a rough time. Hmm. And we just have to kind of soothe our way through that and be there together. And sometimes that's enough too. Nice. What are your thoughts on the idea of, uh, I, I've kind of heard two perspectives on this, that if you're, if it's nighttime and you're having an argument with your partner, one school of thought is ne never go to bed angry and like hash it out. And another school of thought is, no, 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 absolutely go to bed angry because you'll you'll get over it by the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I'm to I, well, I, I can see both sides to it, but um, I, I would totally sit on the second one really because you, sometimes when you're in a really high emotion state, you're not in a position to resolve anything because you're both so angry with each other or upset with each other. or And so the words coming out of your mouth aren't helpful, mm. um, but could cause more damage. Mm. And so it's okay to take time out and go and sort of calm the system, get back to somewhere close to um, a calm state. Um, but sleep does that for us, right? So, you know, you can go to bed feeling something really uncomfortable or intense, and then you can wake up the next day and think, oh, I feel fine now. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't. But yeah, I would say if if taking a break from each other or having a sleep is what is necessary to help bring that emotion down so that you can talk to your partner with more respect as you resolve something, then do it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, a, fr a, fr a friend of mine mentioned this to me. It was it was a couple of months ago and I was, you know, he's he's been married for a few years. So I, I kind of asked him, you know, what's the, what's the secret? And he said, oh man, the one secret is that he set a ground rule that like, after 10 p.m., you're not going to have any arguments. Because <laughs> he was like, yeah, his, his wife would like, they'd be in bed and the wife would then bring something up, like a grievance or something. And in the early days of the relationship, he would like respond and they'd end up up until like three o'clock in the morning trying to hash it out and not get enough sleep and then feel a bit miserable. And he was just like, you know what? If there's something to be talked about, it can be done before 10 p.m. And he yeah. said that just that one change made such an enormous difference to their relationship. Yeah. And and then also if you, you know, start arguing into the night and then you're both also sleep deprived for the next day. So it's unlikely to be resolved for a few days until you're both um, kind of in your right mind again. So, yeah, I'd say that's pretty mm -hmm. good. Do you and your husband have any sort of relationship rituals like a weekly date night or like a weekly discussion meeting with, yeah, I, just, I know some people do yeah, that sort of stuff no and and you know what we're, we're so busy um we used to kind of you know before we had children there were lots of holidays and going out and socializing and all those things 
Um, but now we genuinely, you know, love spending time as a family. And when we're not doing that, we work together anyway. So well, he, he still works um, during the day at his own thing. And then we make the content together in the evening. So we spend time together and we're being creative together. Sometimes that's fun. Sometimes yeah. it's not so fun. You know, sometimes there's just a work element to it and yeah. you're grinding and, and I'm kind of, you know, we're trying to film and I'm sat there kind of swearing at myself thinking, yeah. I just don't want to be doing this right now. Yeah. <laughs> and he's trying to encourage me, come on, um, or the other way around. Um, so, no, I don't, do we have any rituals? I don't know. Um, not sort of really salient ones that I can say, that is our ritual. I'm mm. sure we have little things. Um, probably something that's really helpful that's developed over the years of knowing each other is humor and being able to find humor in moments that could turn into something. So I think when you're younger and you're in the early days of a relationship, things that um, often turn into something because maybe because you're not so secure in yourself or secure in the relationship that maybe they need hashing out. Maybe those things need those discussions in the early years. And then you, once you've been together a while, you know where that's going. You know, it's the same old thing. So you can always kind of laugh at each other's imperfections and, um, or we can anyway, um, but we've known each other for a long time. So yeah, um, yeah sometimes we can kind of start to moan mm. and then we it all becomes a bit of a joke and, and we laugh it off. And then it just it helps you to get this sort of perspective. You just sort of shift out for a minute and you get this bird's eye view of everything and how ridiculous it is. And then you carry on with yeah. life. Um, so changing gears slightly, um, we, we asked our viewers and listeners of the podcast through our Telegram community, which will be linked down below in the video notes, video description, show notes, um, what they wanted to hear from you. And like loads of people were asking questions around how to manage stress and how to manage overthinking. Okay. So I wonder if we can kind of dive into those. Um, so one of our listeners, Amar asked, um, do you have any practical tools for dealing with overthinking? So I guess mm. like what is overthinking and like, how do we, how do we manage it? Yeah, I guess overthinking is that term, isn't it? That's sort of um, been used a lot online that I probably hadn't really sort of used clinically before that. Um, and I think what people are referring to is worry, right? So it's that kind of, I'm thinking about things way too much. I'm going round and round in circles. It's almost like that kind of thought washing machine, isn't it? Where you're just churning it over yeah. and over. And and sometimes, you know, if that's about the past, that would be, we'd call that rumination. So you know, you're just churning over something again and again, but in a really non-productive way yeah. that's not going to come to any kind of resolution. And actually, uh, rumination is a key predictor of uh, the sort of maintenance of depression oh, or the, okay. or relapse of depression as well. So that rumination of going over things in the past tends to get you down, um, whereas worry or overthinking about the future and that kind of churning over, often it's catastrophizing thoughts, that kind of thing, the worst case scenarios, what am I going to do if, what am I going to do when? Um, that leads to anxiety, right? Because we're starting to think of um, the future, not necessarily in a positive way, but in a um, the worst case scenario way and predicting that I'm not going not to cope way. So then you get more and more anxious. And when you're anxious, then it creates this sense of um, those things demand your attention even more. So you feel like you need to spend more time thinking about these things because you're convincing yourself that you're going to come to a resolution. But when you're worrying, you're not really answering the catastrophizing questions. So the what ifs, you know, you kind of repeat them in your mind. What if this happens? What if that happens? Um, 
and, and you'll recognize that through if you're having it as a conversation. So if you're, you know, with your partner, for example, and you're saying, well, we can't do that because what if that? And then they might come up with a resolute, well, then we'll sort it out this way. Oh, but, but what if that? Yeah. And what if that? And, and so you realize that no matter how much the other person tries to reassure you, you will find another catastrophizing thought to come up with. Um, so, you know, you've got those two kind of areas of, I think what people are referring to as overthinking. Yeah. Nice. Um, uh, yeah. Different emotions. So I had I had a bit of a, a moment when you said I think I think the first thing you said was that overthinking is basically just worrying. And I was like, oh, it is. Yeah. Because I think I guess overthinking is a word a lot of people use, but they wouldn't necessarily use the word I'm worried. So yes. actually, I'm worried is like you know, let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. I... So so worry about the past leads to well, rumination on the path to depression. Worry about the future leads to anxiety because of the fear of bad things happening. Yeah. No, neither option is anything you can really do anything about. <laughs> so like, yeah. it's a somewhat unproductive yeah. cycle of thinking. And and again, that's where living in a mindful way and using mindfulness skills helps you to stay in the present because uh, in the very present, if all we have is right now, then there's much less to fear and feel depressed about in the, in the here and now for, for, yeah. for most people. So, you know, mindfulness is... It's not about never thinking about the future because we need to, right? We need to live as if we have a future. Mm. Um, and it's not about never thinking about the past and finding resolution in that. Mm. It's about recognizing which thoughts arrive and which ones are actually useful to you, which ones can lead somewhere and which ones are just churning over and over and causing you distress. So it's about kind of observing thoughts that arrive, noticing what emotions they bring with them and how they make you feel and where they tend to take you. Because I think with overthinking, it often tends to be the same thing over and over again. So you know where it goes, right? So in the end, you you get, once you've sort of been mindful for a while, you get to know, okay, I know that if I go down this path, I know how I'm gonna feel, I know where it's gonna go. And then just by doing that, you get this kind of little window of opportunity that opens up where you, you get to choose whether you go down that road, and sometimes you will, or you do something different. And you, you know, you turn your mind back to the present and you almost wait for the next thing to come um, and the next experience or you, um, you know, mindfully participate. So you're very active mindfully. So you'll do something that uh, draws your attention to the here and now. Because if the, the worries, I mean, I did that. I talk about it in the book, I think, um, where when, when we first learned about mindfulness as clinical trainees, in my cohort, it's kind of embarrassing, really. You'd imagine that a bunch of trainee psychologists would be really open-minded and um, a sort of nice audience to teach that kind of stuff to. And I remember feeling terrible for the, the tutors at the time because it was a room full of sort of giggles and messing around and, and everyone was thinking, are we really going to teach this? Is this helpful? Mm. Uh, this feels a bit wishy-washy. And I was absolutely a cynic when I first learned about it. And it wasn't until we got to... It was exam season. We were coming up to the Viva exams and I had, you know, different things due in, stressful time. And at the time, that, that's when I used to kind of uh, go out for a little run in the afternoon as a way of just getting away from the desk and de-stressing. And so when I, I went for, the, um, for this run and I thought, you know, I'm just going to try this mindfulness thing while I'm running. Let's just see. Right. Okay. So, and I'm, I'm running through a sort of forest track on gravel. So I just focused on the sound of my feet on the gravel as, as my anchor to the here and now. So that was the thing that's happening right now is what yeah. I can hear and what I could see around me in the forest and stuff. And thoughts of emails, deadlines, career possibilities, or, you know, what, what on earth is going to happen to me after I qualify those, or will I ever even qualify those kind of things? 
those thoughts came all the time that, you know, probably thousands of times during that run. But each time I noticed that thought or noticed that I'd gone off with one of those thoughts, I just pulled myself back to the sound. And I probably brought my mind back, you know, a thousand times. And then as I got to the end of that run, I thought, okay, okay, I get this. It's not, it's not that you have this goal of ultimate focus and no other thoughts distract you and, you know, a kind of monk style kind of image, you know, that stereotypical thing that people think of. It was more that I chose, I constantly made a choice about where I was going to place my attention in those moments. And that gave me, you know, for this sort of half hour jog or whatever it was, it meant that I chose not to worry for that time. I chose not to overthink everything. I knew I couldn't do anything about it, right? I'm out in the middle of the forest running. Um, so I chose to just focus on the here and now for that time. And, you know, it, it was in those sort of micro moments, a little break for my brain, but it was work in a sense that I had to keep bringing my attention back. And that's the thing is, is, uh, mindfulness isn't um, sort of an indulgent rest. You know, it's not like deep relaxation. Yeah. It's it's almost gym for the mind. So you're building that mental muscle to be able to notice where your mind is, notice if it's helpful for you or not, yeah. and then bring it back to now. Um, and sometimes that's really difficult to do. And sometimes as soon as you bring your mind back, it's gone again. And you have to do it again and again. Um, but yeah. Nice. That's the best description of mindfulness I've ever had. Because I've, I've always got, like, obviously, mindfulness is a big buzzword. Yeah. But that idea that mindfulness is basically drawing your attention to the present moment. Yeah. On purpose. Uh, on purpose, which means that the thoughts are there and then the thoughts leave. But yeah. and you're not, like, attaching to them or over-identifying with them. I kind of found myself doing this last night. So I was um, sort of very jet-lagged because I got back from America yesterday. And I couldn't sleep until, like, 5 a.m. And so I was like, I literally hours in bed, just like lying there. And, you know, I was already a bit sleep deprived because I didn't really sleep on the plane. And I was in this sort of like negative, like kind of mental headspace where I was then thinking about this conference I was at last week and like a few things that happened there and what that means for the business, what that means for my life and what that means for my relationship. But it was, it was kind of like, huh, this is actually just like an unproductive sort of thought process to have right now. Because I also, I also recognized that yeah, so it was a, 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 a Tony Robbins concert. That, well, okay. I, say, I say concert. It was sort of a cross between a concert and a, and a seminar last week. And one of the things he often talks about is being in the right like state to make decisions about certain things. And I was I, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, I'm overthinking all this stuff about the business and about life. But right now, it's a bit of the night. It's kind of hot. Like I'm sleep deprived. This is just not a good time to worry about this stuff. Yeah. And so I was <laughs> I was trying to kind of draw my attention to my breath and things like that and then I would sort of count like okay I got to, I got up to like seven and then I would just forget because the mind would wander again and I would bring him back to the breath to be like nope it's all good yeah. and after a few cycles of this I kind of just had a moment of serenity where I was like that's fine everything is fine as it is like life's good yeah. um, and <laughs> I, fi I find that whenever I have these sorts of moments I almost like laugh to myself because the conclusion is always Everything is actually just fine as it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't need to worry so much about the stuff. If, if I could do something about it, I'll do something about it. Cool action point. Let's talk to this person about this thing on Wednesday when I meet them. Like, whatever. Yeah. Um, and yet, it's so yeah. tempting, isn't it? When we start to, th you know, the mind wants to be busy, and you know, you kind of, it's so tempting to go down that route and try and solve one of life's problems while it would be most helpful for you to kind of go off to sleep, isn't mm -hmm. it? And um, so, I actually use mindfulness a lot. Um, 
in that same way that if, if I sort of get into bed, my mind is busy on things. Um, I'll just focus on like the physical sensation of being in the bed and the kind of, you know, what's the texture of the sheets? What's the temperature of the room? All that, that kind of thing that just kind of brings you back and um, kind of says, yeah, not now worries. I'm, I'm doing this. And mm. I, I find that really helpful. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is to use a distancing language. What what is what is that? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, something from acceptance and commitment therapy, so ACT uh, or ACT therapy. Um, uh, we talk about so things like thought diffusion and and getting this kind of separation from um, thoughts and emotions. Really, so um, there are lots of different techniques you can use, but it, I I use the kind of um, example of. Can you remember the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask? Mm. You probably can't, you're too young, aren't you? But I think I saw it on TV one time, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I, I was talking about it recently at, um, I think it was the Happy Place Festival, and I, I said, oh, does anyone remember the video, The Mask? And I was like, what's a video? Who's <laughs> this old lady talking to us. Um, so, yeah, in The Mask, so uh, Jim Carrey finds this kind of like nothing-looking wood, old wooden mask, and it looks like nothing, but when he puts it on and he holds it close to his face, it kind of grasps him around the back of the head and then it controls everything he does, everything he says, thinks, everything. Um, but again, if he takes it off and he just holds it at arm's length, he gets to see the mask for what it is, which is just a mask. And it then has no control over how he feels or what he does. And it's a bit like that with thought diffusion. It's, it's taking, so we talked about thoughts are not facts. Holding a thought as a fact or thinking because I've thought that it must be true is a bit like putting it here. It's you're kind of, you're blinkering yourself from seeing any other perspective. Yeah. So all you're doing is taking a thought from kind of here to here and you're going, okay, now I can see it for what it is, which is one possible perspective. And then you've got all this space to kind of consider other things as well. So sometimes uh, like a really simple technique might be, okay, if you're, um, lots of those thoughts are causing you distress, um, writing them down, but not only writing them down, starting that sentence with, I'm having thoughts that, or I'm noticing the thought that. So you're immediately kind of priming your mind for, this is a thought. This is not, I'm not writing a fact, I'm writing a thought or a perspective or the story I'm telling myself is, or the narrative currently is, those kind of beginnings of sentences can just help to give you that extra arm's length so that you can see that thought for what it is. And, and just something as simple as that can take some of the power out of it. Uh, or some people with um, different anxiety disorders like OCD will um, kind of uh, give a name to a certain type of thoughts. Or, you know, uh, if there are lots of anxious thoughts, they might give that person an A, you know, that that's that as if there's a sort of person with having those thoughts and, you know, thank you, Elga or whatever it is for, you know, thank you for bringing those thoughts. And, and all you're doing when you just give little comments like that is you're just taking a step back from it. So you're getting a bird's eye view on it um, so that it's not here blocking your view of everything else. Nice. That's so good. Yeah, I think that's, I, <clears throat> I guess that's one of the benefits of journaling mm. that you... yeah write the things down and i often find myself saying you know like my internal narrative is blah 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 blah, blah. yeah and then i'll once it's down on paper or on the ipad i'll be like okay well that's just clearly absurd because that's just not true <laughs> yeah but when it's in, in the mind 
it's yeah. so easy for the mind to convince itself that that's true. Whereas written down on paper, it's like, okay, well, clearly this is just BS. Yeah, right. And and some people will kind of have a thought and think, I just, I, don't, I can't even write it down. It just feels too, you know, it feels too um, embarrassing or, you know, exposing to write it down. And sometimes that's because we're buying into it more than we perhaps could or should. Mm. And so, yeah, the process of writing it down and the feeling of exposure that comes with writing it down, even if no one else can see it, is you kind of always getting honest with yourself about, mm, let's kind of put this to the test and see if um, see if I can kind of still feel the same way about it once I've written it down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Have, you, have you come across the work by Byron Katie? Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, I started, like, that was a Long time. that was one of the books I started reading last night when I couldn't sleep. Because <laughs> at this Tony Robbins event, he was kind of talking about this method. Um, I, find, I just find it really helpful. It's like these um, these four questions when you're having a thought or, or some kind of limiting belief. Mm. Um, question number one, is this true? <laughs> yeah. And then just asking yourself yes or no, like, you know, the, the body will have a response to that. Yeah. Question number two, is this really true? It's like, huh, actually, perhaps it's not. And the way that 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 you know he was talking about it at this at this business conference was, a lot of us will um, have these limiting beliefs about what we can or what we can't do, and we'll say you know in my case that oh you know I shouldn't I can't grow my business because if I do it'll mean my lifestyle is gonna is is gonna become more stressful. Yeah. Like is that true? Like, is that really true? Is like have I actually examined all the evidence and like landed at this conclusion that growing a business always means that the owner becomes more stressed? And just writing it down and asking those questions. Um, and then, you know, the next, like, question three would be something like, how does it make you feel to identify with that thought? And then question four is, how would it make you feel if you just chose not to identify with that thought? Yeah. <laughs> and then you do, the, like, a, a turnaround, I think she calls it, where you sort of write down the exact opposite of which, which in this context would be, the more, the more my business grows, the less stressed I'll be. Yeah. And you find reasons to support that. And it's just like a very simple step-by-step process where I was like, damn, this is actually bloody helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's a really, it's a it's sort of interesting, um, uh, I say variation of, it's kind of CBT in some ways that CBT will look at, okay, um, thought challenging. So it's, you know, um, and that would be one way to do a thought challenge is just asking yourself, is it true? Often when we're really stuck with a thought and it's causing us a lot of distress, it's because we genuinely buy into it. And... So, you know, once you get to the point of therapy and you ask someone, is that thought true? They will say yes. And, and they do believe in it. And that's why they're in such pain. And so sometimes it's not enough. And, mm. and that's when you can go into the sort of um, challenging that thought. So uh, looking at the evidence. So is it true? Okay, let's let's just play around with the idea of taking it to court. And, and what where is the evidence? Not only in my opinions, but what evidence would stand up in court to nice. say this is true? Yeah. And then looking at the other side, where's the evidence that it might not be true or might not be the best reflection of reality right now? And you can go into doing all that kind of thought challenging stuff, looking at both sides, getting really honest with yourself about it. And you can get help with like um, from friends and stuff to do that if you're not in therapy. Because um, sometimes it's really difficult when you're really stuck on something to even consider other options. Yeah. And that's why you're stuck, right? Because it's not easy. Um, but for some people, that's not the best way because it can set up an argument in your mind and then you're just ruminating on, you know, you, so you can kind of 
try and go down for the you know the all the evidence that this thought isn't true and then your mind just keeps coming back with yeah but yeah but this is the reason it's true this is the reason it's true and, and you end up almost in more distress because you're yeah. just going back and forth with this sort of internal argument um and that's when the act stuff is super helpful so the diffusion stuff so it's like actually do you know what true or not i'm just going to push this thought to there yeah. and i'm just going to see it for what it is for a minute and i'm going to try and hold it lightly and I know that that's one option. I can go down that and I can I can go down that route and I can kind of fuse with that thought and I can spend time with it. Where is that going to take me? And what are my other options? And and sort of holding those options lightly, um, which is in some ways a bit more mindful. So rather than getting into the nitty gritty and, and trying to find the truth, it's acknowledging that often... A truth is a mixture of different opinions and yeah. not one. And you're, yeah. you know, sometimes you're never going to find the truth. Yeah. Um, and being okay with that, kind of holding that lightly and moving on to the next experience. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I find helpful is that um, <laughs> almost the, almost that the, 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 there is no truth. It's yeah. just you, you know, generally, if I think of the the disempowering thoughts that I have. They're not things that are like objectively true or not. It's not like I'm I'm not going to be ruminating about the fact that I cannot physically bench 200 kg, <laughs> but I might be thinking, oh, my content's not valuable. People don't like me. Um, I'm going to become irrelevant. Like, oh, I'm I'm a bad public speaker or whatever. Whatever the thing might be. Mm. Right, these things like you know, I was, I was I was speaking to my cousin the other day in the car, and she just casually threw out the phrase, oh, I'm just really lazy, and I was like, are you? Is that is you know is that true? And she'd never really questioned that belief because I guess a belief is just a thought that we, I, that that we hold with some level of certainty, mm. and we sort of went went over the evidence a little bit. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, to me, it doesn't look like you're lazy because you're doing this, 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 and this. Like, how do you, how do you feel about that? She was like, Oh yeah. I mean, I guess when you put it that way, you know, perhaps I'm not lazy. And it was it was such it was almost a revelation for her yeah. to be like, Oh, I'm not actually lazy. Oh shit! Like I've been telling myself the story for such a long time, but I find it, it, it helpful to imagine the idea that. The, there is no truth. It's just a matter of a thought that we believe because we have certainty with it. Yeah. And actually, there are way, way more options out there than believing that one specific thought that I'm lazy or I'm a bad public speaker or whatever the thing might be. And that's where labeling thoughts can be really helpful too. So, you know, noticing a thought for what it is is often, you know, if with that situation, it's as you have the thought, recognizing mm, that's a judgment or that's a self-criticism or that's an opinion or that's a memory, or that's a, a story I tell myself, or that's a prediction about the future, or there's a catastrophizing thought. So, you know, there are lots of different types of thoughts, none of which would qualify for giving fact as it is. So as soon as you can kind of notice, a thought, you know, be mindful of a thought, notice it, and then label it as, oh, yeah, that's a, you know, self-critical judgment of mine, then then you're in a better position to be able to um, take it for what it is and, and not buy into it. You still might hold it there and you still might feel like you're lazy, but noticing that it's an unkind way of speaking to yourself and an unhelpful kind of thought pattern or an opinion mm. um, helps you to kind of, helps it to carry less weight yeah. and... and have less effect on how you feel. Yeah, like you're holding it at arm's length again. Yeah. So it's it's almost like this idea, like thought, like labeling, labeling this as a narrative or as a story or as a memory or as a self criticism. Mm. 
helps helps it sort of be like, oh, yeah. actually, it's just that wooden mask yeah. that I can hold a little bit away. Well, it sounds like you did a really great sort of thought challenging exercise with her. So, well yeah. done. <laughs> well, thank you. I really like the thing about like would the stand up in court. Again, I've been blessed not to really suffer with any mental health problems, but for ex- for example, if someone is highly anxious or highly depressed, and a depressed person might might think life will never be good again, and obviously that one stood up in court. And I like the I've, I've I've got a few friends who have experienced that, and I, I was kind of asked them about this that like in in that moment, like you obviously know it's not true, um, that like life will be better, and they were like. Yeah, you kind of know intellectually that it's not true, but like you feel emotionally and in your soul that like, of course it's true. Mm. Um, so I guess to what extent does challenging thoughts in court help with the more extreme forms of, of mental yeah. health? Problems? And that's where it takes um, more time and effort. Like you were saying about the the, um, the, the sort of questions from the book that you'd read and um those can be really, really helpful with, in sort of in a, a light way. But wh- when someone is really depressed, um, you often spend, you can spend a lot of time on something like thought challenging or, and, and, and working out whether that's helpful or whether you move to something like diffusion and kind of just separating from it and allowing it to be there. Because, you know, that's the, that's the bind in depression is that it's not that this thought appeared out of nowhere and then made you feel depressed. The two are occurring at the same time. So when you're, when you're depressed, you're more likely to have those thoughts. Yeah. And you're more likely to believe in them. And, and and when you're having those thoughts, you're then more likely to feel more depressed. And so it's this kind of yep. cycle, this downward spiral that you're kind of stuck in. Um, and so, you know, therapy is often a, a process of chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. There isn't the sort of one turning point where you go, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the future could be fine. And, and then everything's okay. It's a sort of, Oh, well, you know, so often we'll do a, um, a thought challenging task and you'll rate at the beginning. So you'll get your thought that's causing distress and you'll rate, maybe give it a percentage on how much you really believe that thought to be true and how much you buy into it. And it might be 100%. Uh, it's not unusual for it to be 100%. Um, and then you'll do all your different exercises kind of trying to challenge it. Mm. And you're not trying to turn it on its head as much as loosen it off, you know, just holding it lightly. So um, you might then, after you've done some of those thought challenging exercises, rate it again for how much you believe in it. And that might go from 1% to 60 or 70%. And that's success, right? So that's just slightly loosening. So you're allowing yourself to consider that there could be other ways of looking at this. And that would be, okay, movement, progress. And then, you know, move on to the next thing. And, and that's why these things take time, right? That's why no one can rush in and convince someone not to be depressed because there's lots of different layers and everything's binding it together um, from different avenues and different kind of angles. Um, So you have to kind of pick it apart like those weaves in the basket. Nice. I guess one one of the things that came up when we were doing, um, uh, you know, asking the audience as well about about the podcast is this, the the idea of positive thinking where like positive, like, it's. It sounds like some of the stuff you know we were talking about reframing earlier. Yeah, that sounds like it could be quote positive. Like, what is positive thinking? Because if it, that that also feels like one of these buzzwordy thingies that also feels to be missing some kind of nuance. Mm. And that's where I kind of um, uh, I I, I asked about it a lot because I I put it in the book about the sort of uh, positive vibes only trend online and the kind of you know. 
um, don't allow yourself to think any negative thoughts and that kind of thing. And um, I don't really buy into that side of things because in order to do that successfully, you have to really deny your own human brain. And, you know, because we think of it as, as in your brain is set up to kind of, you know, help you survive, but also to help you generate meaning and understand your environment and what's going on around you yep. and what demands are placed on you. And if your brain is doing that well, then a fair degree of the time, it's going to come up with some sort of negative ideas about what's going on, right? Because the world isn't, you know, Barbie land or whatever. Um, and so if you then, if if you set yourself up with this idea of, I'm not going to have any negative thoughts, I'm going to be so positive, and then you inevitably have a, a negative evaluation of something, you then criticize yourself for being so negative and oh, I'm such a negative person and I'm this and that. And then you go down and down and down and down, right? Because I had a negative thought, maybe that thing was negative. Maybe it was an accurate reflection of your reality. Um, but you then, instead of using that information, you get into this spiral of criticizing yourself for having been negative. Um, so again, I think don't give yourself the expectation that that you are going to be 100% positive all of the time. Just accept that you are human. And when you have a negative thought, some of those will be helpful to you actually, and some of those won't. And I think in some ways that kind of wisdom is is being able to hold them, as go back to the hold them all lightly thing, yeah. and then ask yourself, which ones do I want to spend time with? Is it going to be helpful for me to spend time with this and go deeper with it and connect with it? Or is it something I can then um, let go of and move on from? Um, we t we've talked about, um, you know, if we move on to, if we, if we talk about like anxious thought patterns, um, we've we've kind of alluded to the idea of catastrophizing. Um, there's a few other things that um, I think you talk about in the book around, you know, personalizing, overgeneralizing, labeling. I wonder if we can just go through some of these and, mm. you know, for, for people who might not be, be familiar with them. So what yeah. what is personalizing? So personalizing is that thing that we all do. I mean, all of these biases are human and normal, right? So they're not um, pathological. They are your brain taking a quick shortcut to help you come up with um, an explanation for what's going on um, and possibly help your survival. Um, but do that really, really quickly. So, you know, the idea that your brain only has certain information to go on. So let's say you're um, you're walking down the street and you see someone you know on the other side of the street. So you wave and you say hi and they don't, you, you feel like they've seen you, but they don't wave back. And then your brain goes straight to, oh, that thing I said the other day, it must have offended her. Yeah. She must hate me. Everyone must be talking about me. I'm so awful. What was I thinking? How could I say something like that? And, and you go down this kind of spiral. Yeah. And and if you kind of get the bird's eye view from that scenario, we could sit down here and scribble out 10,000 reasons why that person might not have smiled. Yeah. Um, but you go down this hole of kind of self-loathing. And so you're, you're taking an event that could have lots of explanations or could be fairly neutral and you're making it about you and often in a negative way that is kind of painful or hurtful to you. So you kind of personalize stuff. Nice. Um, and I guess kind of understanding these is like, if you understand, oh, I'm, I'm personalizing there or I'm catastrophizing, it's, it's again helpful yeah. to hold the thought at arm's length. Yeah, and, and, and just being able to kind of even label a thought as personalizing is still one possible version of that reality, right? She sure. might hate you, yeah. but also uh, she might not put her contact lenses in. Yeah. You know, it, it happens. And so um, it's acknowledging that when you've personalized, you can just 
be free to consider something else and or what you're going to do about it next and or acknowledge that you tend to um go down that anxious route of thinking that the worst is happening and it's down to you and and that is your brain doing a good job again it's not like a fault in the system because um that is quite a big psychological threat if you feel like your friendship group or your community is not safe or accepting of you then historically that is a risk to your survival you know we live in groups we live in communities so you know back in the day if you were rejected by that community your chances of survival were pretty drastically reduced and um and probably still today you know that the effects of loneliness are not to be snuffed at so um it's your brain trying to keep you safe mm. but it's not always the best reflection of reality it's just the quickest um response from your brain that goes to the thing that's probably going to help you to survive the most nice what is the mental filter so mental i did a video on this actually yeah. where i used like a big tray um like a big colander type thing um and i put kind of different sized beans in to show kind of different types of thoughts and mental filter is often um you, you get this a lot with um depression actually where the good things that happen, for example, or thoughts about things that could actually make you feel a bit better tend to get filtered out and mm. kind of disregarded and left. And then what you're left with to focus on is all the stuff that makes you feel worse and the negative stuff. So I think in the old, it's an old video now, but um, I think in the video I used the example of, um, let's say you make a video and you're scanning through the comments and you're going past hundreds of really positive comments yep. and you're looking for that one person <laughs> yep. that doesn't like you. And and so you're filtering out, you know, on the screen, you're filtering out all the positive thoughts that could help you to feel good about your content. Yeah. And then you zoom in on that one thing that that makes you feel worse. Yep. And, um, and I did that myself. I noticed in the early days where I was kind of looking through comments and I was kind of scanning quickly through these really nice comments, looking for anyone who, you know, didn't like it. Um, noticing that was a mental filter in the moment just allowed me to go, no, we're not doing this. Okay, mm. put the phone away. And so it's actually more, you know, labeling it and noticing what bias it is, it's actually more powerful than you think. Cause it just allows you to kind of trip out of the yeah. um, downward so spiral. I was uh, I was interviewed on a on a big podcast recently and the interview, in, interview came out about a week ago. And I find myself going back to that YouTube video and looking at the comments and sorting my newest, cause, I, cause I've read all the comments on that video. And I'm like, you know, I'm so curious. And I find myself doing this as well. I'm like, yeah, nice comment, nice comment. I'm like, oh, that, that's the one. And I saw one <laughs> last night where it said something like, oh, you know, Ali Abdal is just a scammer or something like that. And I was like, that's the one. And then I realized, wait a minute, like, we just skipped past like 18. Oh my God, this interview was incredible. Ali is so articulate. He's such a humble <laughs> guy. What a nice guy. Oh my God, so helpful. Best interview ever. And I just fo fixated on the one that was like, Ali Abdal is a scammer. This is what I'm going <laughs> to think about for the next 48 hours. Yep. <laughs> your, your mental filter. Yeah. Um, Again, just have, I guess having that terminology to be like, and the visual of just, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah, this is a yeah. game that we're not going to play, so <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it just enables you to see through it and to see where it's going to take you, and then to make the choice about whether you go with that or whether you don't. And sometimes you will, um, and sometimes you kind of do something different. What's the difference between stress and anxiety? So um, I, I talk about this in in the book. Actually, I think there are terms that again online get used sort of interchangeably probably to mean similar or the same things and we do have that one stress response right so we have that kind of threat system in our body um and we only have the one 
the kind of survival response, that sort of, you know, fight or flight mode and stuff that people talk about. But the way that we experience, whether we conceptualize that experience, I think depends on the words we use for it. So I don't know if I was going to give an example, let's say, um, let's say you, you, you've got a busy day at work, but you need to post I don't know, your passport off or something and it's got to be done today and you've got a gap in your meetings or half an hour and you know you can get to the post office, quickly post it and get back. And then you get to the post office and there's this huge queue and you're stood in the queue and you suddenly start to kind of feel that heart pounding or a bit sweating and what feels like stress. Mm. And that's your body kind of creating this increased sense of sort of alertness to say, do you know what? We might need to reprioritize here because we might not be able to meet all the demands placed on us. We might not get back for that meeting. Yeah. And then you're trying to work out what's most important here. Is it posting this or getting to that meeting? And, mm. and you might call that stress if that was it, if it was sort of, you know, what demands can I meet? You might call it anxiety if you know that you're now not going to get back for that meeting, but your boss tends to humiliate people that turn up late. Mm. And so you're now anxious about public humiliation, yeah. um, which is more anxiety than stress. So it's really about kind of the way we conceptualize it, I think. And, and often we term things anxiety when it's sort of more threat-based or that that kind of feeling. But yeah. but people use those terms really interchangeably these days, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah as, as you were describing that, I was, uh, the, the, there was, the, uh, I think it happened like, uh, was it last week or the week before? Where, where often if if my girlfriend and I are going out to dinner and we're meeting someone there or we have like a reservation at a restaurant for a certain time, she'll take ages to get ready. And I will find myself being like, sort of feeling the stress response to be like, come on, like, yeah. it's not that hard. Like, you look great already. Like, why does it take, like, what the hell? What, what, what even is that stuff you're putting on? You're like, come on. And I, I, I often notice that like, oh, I'm, feel, I'm feeling stressed right now. That's fine. Yeah. Like, I can just, I can just let it go. And I, I, I'll think, what's the worst that's going to happen? We're going to be late for the restaurant. That's fine. Yeah. What if they cancel our table? Great. We'll just go somewhere else. And then I'll be like, yeah. you know what? It's fine. I'll just read a book <laughs> while she's taking ages to get I'm ready and, figure out, <laughs> and figuring out what shoes go with this thing or, or whatever the situation might be. <laughs> but I find myself kind of noticing that like, oh, I'm feeling stressed right now. And I, you know, there's no reason to be because actually, you yeah. know, the worst case scenario is actually pretty is actually pretty reasonable. Yeah, yeah. And the lateness is a big one, isn't it, for a lot of people because um, it triggers, you know, if, for example, if, if someone else is making you late but yeah. you really value being on time, maybe because you associate that with, um, I don't know, if, if you grew up in a family where anyone who was late was humiliated or was put down for being, I don't know, selfish or, yeah. you know, given those sorts of terms, then it might bring in, bring in that sort of fear of... Um, judgment social judgment or social rejection and those kind of things and yeah um and that's where sort of turning towards any feeling with curiosity as opposed to judgment so like i'm stressed i'm going to try not to be about this or um actually i'm stressed why am i stressed about being late what, what's the worst thing about being late today what is it i'm really scared about about being late mm. um is it because i know that person that's going to be at the table always hates it when people are um late and I know they're going to kind of bitch about us later on or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and once you start to unravel it, you then understand where it's come from and it's much easier then to to do something with it or to feel something different about it. Because, you know, well, do I really value that person's opinion? Is that person really important to me? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe it's no. And But then you've got a sort of chance to do something with it. 
as opposed to just sort of trying to make it go away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also say that we have a love-hate relationship with stress. Uh, what do you What do you mean by love-hate relationship? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember saying that. Uh, but did I write it in the book? Um, yeah, um, you wrote, we humans have a love-hate relationship with stress. We love the thrill of a horror movie or the speed of the roller coaster. We actively choose yeah. these spikes in our stress response and we anticipate them. Um, yeah, I mean, because, and, that, and that's the thing about anxiety as well, isn't it? That it's often talked about as something really negative that's pathological about us and we need to make it go away. And that if you ever feel anxiety, it's probably because there's something wrong with you. And it's just not true, is it? And, and uh, you know, I love the kind of example of the, you know, the roller coasters or the horror movies, because that's an example of when we are more accepting of those emotions so yeah. much so that we we add them into an, an, an experience. You, know, you don't have to watch a horror movie. You could watch something else, but you choose that because the thrill of that, those sensations that come with it in what we know to be a safe environment really um, is in some way enjoyable. And it's, it feels like living, it's an experience. And, um, but then anxiety in other situations, we conceptualize it slightly differently that makes us just want to absolutely eradicate it and make it go away. Um, and that's where I think, you know, shifting your relationship with emotion generally is just so powerful. It, it gives you so much freedom if you're willing to carry the discomfort that comes with whatever experience it is. It means that anything that means something to you is not necessarily out of your reach if you're willing to feel the discomfort of getting there. Um, but if you're not, then a lot of the world is closed off to you because most things that are meaningful and, um, uh, what's the word? Most things that are sort of meaningful or feel like achievements involve discomfort on the way. Mm. So if you're not willing to make yourself feel vulnerable and uncomfortable, you kind of close a lot of doors to yourself, I think. Mm. Nice. Let's talk about burnout. Um, but we were just talking before we resumed, or while we were grabbing coffee, um, this idea that you know both of us have as content creators, I guess, where there's this sort of almost feels like a hamster wheel sometimes of like yeah. more content is always better because like the thing is growing and you don't want to fuck things up because the thing is growing and it's like, okay, well, let's just triple our output because we might as well and like the thing is growing and yeah. all of this sort of the desire for more and more and more, which then gets us to sort of in the direction of, of burnout. But I wonder what's what's been your mm -hmm. experience of balancing more with like taking care of yourself and having decent work-life balance? Oh, that's been a massive learning curve for me. And it's something that I've just had to learn from experience. And I think most people do, don't they? Because, you know, we all preach it, um, but then we all end up going through it anyway. And um, I never imagine, I don't think anyone imagines that being a content creator um, is difficult <laughs> until you try to do it. Mm. And there's something about, it is a bottomless pit that will take from you as much as you're willing to give. And... And sometimes even when things are going well, that the demand increases, right? So you kind of, you, you, it's great that it's going well, but also then uh, when we first started, for example, you know, each video we put on seemed to be doing better than the last and it was all good, but we felt like, okay, well, this will switch off at some point. It might last a week, it might last a month, and yeah. then and then it will be that thing we did once. So while it's hot, let's just go for it. And, and so we kind of, sort of worked in a totally unsustainable way because we thought it was going to all switch off at some point and it didn't and um so the idea of doing this for a month was okay let's just get through this month and then it's two and then it's six and then it's a couple of years and um and that's tough that that's you know um 
at some point you have to kind of step back and go, this isn't sustainable. So what can be sustainable? But the process of working in a way that's unsustainable, it's then really difficult to step back and and take something away or do less for the sake of a healthier life. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it, psychologically it's really difficult to do, isn't it? To say, sure, I'm not going to make a video every day. Mm. I'm going to make three videos a week and yeah. enjoy the rest of my life. Or, you know, um, and I guess you could apply that to other, you know, lots of other jobs or working for yourself, that kind of thing. Um, I think psychologically it's quite difficult to do. Mm. Um, it's almost a sense that like, oh, I I could film a video a day, but the fact that I'm choosing not to means that I am lazy <laughs> and that I am just not a hard worker and like, what's wrong with me and like am i just a softie or am i not disciplined enough or like yeah. all of this stuff and the fact that you know all these platforms are are made to be just as addictive to the creator as they are to the consumer right so you know it's that possibility isn't it like mm. what if you made a video and what if it did really well and you know what if it led to something or you whatever they you know all those kind of senses of possibilities in your mind that um that draw you into doing more and more and more um often to the detriment of, you know, mm. some other thing that you love doing in your life or that's important to you. I'm, I'm curious what this experience is like for you because from where I'm sitting, you seem to have won the game because <laughs> the book is great, like it's selling super well. It seems to be selling week on week, which means that it's not just your promotion that's actually selling the book. It's the fact that it's good and people are recommending it to each other. So now you're, you've like won the game. And so like, do you, do you still feel that like sense of like, ah, oh, I want this next video to go viral. Or, like, I should be putting out more content. No, I'm just kind of sitting here trying to work out how Ali Abdul is saying to me, I've won the game. Because it's, it, isn't that strange how, you know, we're both sat here. Um, you know, I did your YouTube course oh. and I've learned a lot from you. And you were always, when we first started on YouTube, someone we looked up to, yeah, that's the kind of content I want to produce. It's brilliant. <laughs> love it. He's won the game. Um, and you never feel like you arrive. You mm. never feel like you've won the game. You just constantly feel like you're playing the game, yeah. right? And um, and still I do, right? Because I haven't finished. I, I'm still going and I've still got more challenges and things ahead that we're sort of planning on and working on. And um, yeah, I think the idea of, it's a bit like when we talked about the, the Sunday Times thing and, and you go, oh, yeah, good. And then the next moment comes and, mm. and it's not, as exciting or, you know, um, or then people go, what's next? And what are you going to do now? And how are you going to do better? And yeah. So you never really win the game. I think the winning is in playing, right? The mm. winning is in, um, it sounded really cheesy. The winning is in playing. No, it's, I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, my, maybe that, maybe yeah. it is. The winning is in, is in choosing to, because I mean, in some ways it doesn't get any luckier than finding yourself in a position where you can, uh, do what you would do whether or not anyone's paying you or not and make it into a living. So, you know, my kind of, my pastime forever has been to read, you know, books about psychology mm. and and often popular psychology and people who were communicating it in such a an engaging way. That, and, and that was what I generally did with my spare time. So the fact that I can now... Um, say, right, I've got a writing task. I'm going to see what, you know, what research is out there or what great books are out there. And um, and I get to call that work. That's mm. that's probably that's winning cool. the game. Yeah. yeah, whatever views we get. And, mm. and I genuinely don't really, um, this is probably really bad, I'm, I, but I, um, I don't really sort of 
look twice at kind of numbers or analytics and stuff like that. And now my husband's really into it and he'll kind of say, oh, that video, that video is doing well. And I've forgotten to even look and uh, and see, you know, what it's done or, um, and I think that helps a lot mm. that I don't base any of my idea of success on, on that stuff. Um, how do you, how do you not, because like, that's a hard place to, you know, I've spoken mm. to a lot of book authors who, you know, a lot of content creators will peg their self-worth to their subscriber account, their follower account, and their last 10 view average or something. A lot yeah. of authors will peg their self-worth to how many copies they've sold and yeah. whether they've hit the best list or not. Like, Do you know what? I, I, I seriously think having children has helped hugely with that mm. because when I think of, my daughter said to me once, she said, how does it feel to have this million, you know, this many million followers? And um, and I kind of looked at her and I thought, I, I, for a moment, she was probably kind of looking at that in a way that I didn't want her to look at it and and I didn't want her to feel any less for not having that yeah. and and so I was very clear that it means absolutely nothing mm. it really doesn't and um while it's been fun at times um if if I accidentally delete the account I'm still me nothing's really different and um, my day-to-day -day life would be different, right? I'd have more free time, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm I'm still I'm no more or less of me having that or not having that, mm. and and it could all switch off tomorrow, right? So I could say something uh, online that made everybody hate me, and and it would all be over. Um, but I'm lucky enough that I think it started late enough in life that I know what's most important to me, and I know mm. it's all kind of a bit silly and um that, you know, people unfollow me every day and that's okay. I'm okay with that. But maybe it's also a position of privilege that because my husband kind of looks at that stuff and, and the analytics that I don't have to, that mm. as a business, obviously, you know, people need to do that. And then I think once you're in it, it's almost really difficult to not become attached to those numbers. Yeah. So yeah, it's probably sort of privileged ignorance for mm. me. <laughs> good way floating it. along nicely making yeah. a few random videos like I, I don't I don't look at YouTube analytics anymore either I just sort of I, like you know Tintin our YouTube producer is amazing and our editing team is amazing yeah I don't even review videos before they come out now mm. a video will just come out and I'll notice uh, oh got some got some YouTube notifications I'll be on the toilet I'll be like oh video came out I'll watch it I'll be like <laughs> sick editing actually worked really well and it's, it's like comes as a surprise to me when a video's come because I'm like oh yeah. nice this, the things, things are being done um, but this is and to quote to this uh, business conference I was at last week, their whole vibe was that if you are a business operator, then growth is stressful. Yeah. And if you're a business owner and you have an operator who's like dealing with the day-to-day -day and you can be the owner doing the, the stuff that you really want to do, then growth is not stressful at all. Growth is actually really fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it sounds like you and I are both sort of in that position where we're the sort of yeah. the talent, as it were, and you've got Matt and I've got my guys doing the stuff. Yeah. Uh, which means that we have the privilege of focusing on the content and yeah. putting a message out there without having to worry too much about the analytics. I'm just swan along doing the creative stuff. Exactly. I just rock up and then Amber and Nadia are the ones doing the research for the episode and looking at the analytics and analyzing all of our stuff to be like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, cool, I'll just rock up and have a chat. Like, yeah. life is good. I think quite early on, I realized that if, um, if I started to even buy into the positive stuff, I'd be like, yeah, that video went so viral and so awesome. And then the next one flopped. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if you, I don't know if if you um, attach or associate your self worth to the positive, you're also going to lose out massively yeah. when the negative happens, which it does, right? Yeah. And um, 
And so I try not to attach my self-worth to the good or the bad too much and just go with the kind of, this is a fun experience and while it's all good and we appear to be being useful to people, then that's great. Um, But also, you know, the day it all stops, it'll be like, that was a cool ride. That was fun. That's a very healthy way of looking at it. Yeah. Just, as, as you would say, like when you said that thing about, oh, you know, if someone deleted my thing, I had like, I was like, oh shit, if someone deleted my YouTube channel, I would lose like <laughs> the single biggest source of meaning in my life. Whereas you've got the family. And so I imagine that takes a lot of the boxes of for like connection and meaningful contribution and service and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And in some ways, it, you know, um, the, the accounts and stuff, it pulls me away from them. So in some ways it's a sort of, it would be a relief. <laughs> I don't mean that. It would be a relief. But it's... Um, yeah, I think I think having already got to a point in my life where I had a profession that I know I can always go back to, right? I, can, I know I can always go back to, you know, bums on seats and seeing people in the room, which I I loved that part of the yeah. job, and you know, it was I just found it such a privilege. So I know that the bits of that that I miss, I could I could go back to and enjoy, and um, so it's not, you know, it's probably a more privileged position than a lot of people if. Um, they've, you know, remortgaged the house and put lots of stuff into this thing and then they're trying to, you know, keep a roof over their heads by making something work. Um, whereas I know I've got other things I can do if if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I think once you're out of survival mode, then yeah. a lot of it then becomes, like, I mean, I mean, I'm definitely out of survival mode, but I still peg an unhealthy amount of my self-worth on, like, yeah. the fact that, like, the identity of, kind of being a big YouTuber and it's like that feels good and it's like I feel like yeah. I'm doing something useful and all this shit so if the channel disappeared overnight well it's not, no, I mean honestly if the channel disappeared overnight I'd be like great let's do something else let's start build that app that I've been wanting to do for a while and just yeah. haven't had the chance to do because of content and stuff yeah so that's a good place to be yeah to, to know that um, you would continue and still be you and and the fact that you built something means you could probably build something else mm. and that you've, you've used and developed so many skills through the experience, whether that's developing a YouTube channel or something else, that, you know, if it stops at any point, then you use everything you've learned along the way to try something new and yeah. go for it. Yeah, I was speaking to a friend yesterday who recently got fired from his job, um, sort of big finance bro who's been like succeeding on all fronts and like... And this is the first time he's had like a setback. And he was saying that like, it was actually a great experience because he's realized, oh, being fired is not that big a deal. He had also already had like loads of freelance gigs coming through LinkedIn. And he's like, oh, you know, this thing of like working a few hours a day is actually quite nice. And before he'd been like, oh my God, being fired would be the worst thing ever because my whole identity is tied up in the fact that I'm a finance bro. But now he's like, I can chill. Yeah, Life is good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess maybe that's, I, I noticed this with students a lot. Um, I, I, I definitely had periods of this when I was a student as well, where it's like an unhealthy amount of self-worth would be pegged to the result of the exam. And then the exam comes and goes, and whether you pass, whether you fail, whatever the, the thing is, mm. you realize, oh, it's not such a big deal. It's, it's, yeah. it's not such a big deal. Life goes on. And actually, there are sources of meaning in life, ideally, other than exam grades. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle to... It's weird, isn't it? You get to a point in your life where you struggle to remember what the results were um but what you i think what you take away from the process of of doing things like exams or going to uni is you learn how hard you're willing to work to get to where you want to go so mm. i remember getting to uni 
Um, I went to Exeter for my undergrad, and um, and we went in with a tutor, and the, and he said, um, uh, you know, this, you know, few people or whatever get first, and everyone's kind of slumped in their chairs. And he said, well, but you know, anyone can do it, but it's you know the fact that you're all here means it's possible but it's about how hard you're willing to work to get there and mm. how many hours you're willing to put in. And that was when my sort of ears pricked up and I thought, okay, game on. Let's, I, I could do hard work. Let's, let's go for it. And that was, you know, just seeing it as, um, uh, you know, good things are available to you um, with hard work. Yeah. It kind of in, empowered me to feel that I would give it a shot. Mm. Whereas if, you know, if if it was just sort of like results-based only that this few number of people get a first, mm. for example, then I would probably have thought that would never be me. Mm. I'm just a normal person. I'm just average, you know, average Jew. Mm. Um, so, you know, seeing something, I think the thing that you learn along all of those things is um, you you get the evidence you get to witness yourself grinding and working hard towards something and enduring setbacks and all that stuff and then you've got that in the bank that you know the next time something difficult comes up i can get through this that's fine a challenge is not the end of everything a challenge is is a sign that i need to get into gear and face this so i i think then you just use that again and again and again regardless of a b c or d or one to nine or whatever it is now yeah it's like this. It's it's quite an empowering thought or belief that mm. hey, whatever happens, I'll rise to I'll, I'll rise to the challenge, and I'm sure I can figure it out based yeah. on past experiences. Yeah, and and I think um, I don't know. Maybe I'm making that sound sort of oversimplified because I know there are lots of problems in life um, where it's just huge and you don't know if you're coming or going, and you know, big awful things are happening. Um, and and that's when you can feel overwhelmed and you're less likely to think, oh, this is a challenge and yeah. not a threat. And yep. um, But then there are also skills to to deal with, you know, those really, really difficult moments that probably slightly different and it's probably about kind of soothing your way through stuff. But um, yeah. What do you mean soothing your way through stuff? Mm. So in uh, dialectical behavior therapy, so DBT, which is um, a year-long therapy, um, they teach emotion coping skills and one of those emotion coping so emotion coping skills is split up into sort of different segments depending on what they're needed for so within sort of um uh emotion regulation skills you would also have distress tolerance skills so you have emotion regulation skills or the skills that you use to keep your emotions fairly balanced Mm -hmm. but then what if something happens and your emotions are kind of out of whack or they're really intense then you need distress tolerance skills. So how do you get through highly distressing, disturbing periods of your life safely? Um, and you it, that's the moments when it, it's all hit the fan. It, it, you know, you are overwhelmed, you don't know what to do, and you've just got to get through. Mm. Um, so self-soothing is one of those skills. So um, that's when you're teaching people not to try to squash the feeling or do the 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 thing that's going to make it disappear right now, but you're going to regret later. Um, but to look after yourself through the discomfort. So um, 
I think I did a video on this a long time ago about doing um, like self-soothing boxes. So we'll often do that in DBT. We'll get people to just get a shoebox or something and they'll they'll put in there lots of things that help them to soothe their way through the most painful moments of their lives safely. Mm. So it's the idea that it's kind of mindfulness. So you, you use all of your senses to um, to help create that feeling of safety. And that's really what you want to do is bring a sense of safeness to the moment. So um, it might be, um, a piece of music that that you know kind of generates certain feelings for you, or it might be a perfume that you associate with uh, love and safety, like um, your mum's perfume or um, lavender or something like that. Or um, it might be something that you can taste that you enjoy that kind of brings you to the present or lots of different things. So you can use all different senses. So you can put different things in a box to kind of soothe you through difficult moments. Hmm. That's nice. <clears throat> um, so we were talking about Burnout, or was, well, I want to talk about burnout. Um, one of the, mm. so the final three chapters of my book, Feel feel Good Productivity, mm. link link down below. Um, <laughs> I need to get more comfortable doing the plugs. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. Um, final, final three chapters, we talk about burnout. And the way that I've sort of looked, looking at the research and stuff, framed things, is that there are kind of three types of burnout yeah. that we have different strategies for dealing with. There is, um, let's see if I can remember this, there's a uh, Overexertion burnout, where you're just working too hard and not taking a break and on, on the road to burnout there. There is depletion burnout, um, which is where we're not kind of resting enough and we sort of our energy is depleted. And then there's misalignment burnout, where we're like doing the thing, but like it's not quite aligned to, whoops, it's not quite aligned to where like our values, where we actually want to go. And so we end up in this phase where like life should be good, but actually you feel a sense of burnout because you're doing something that, that, that doesn't feel like it is fulfilling you or mm. something. To what extent does that vibe with your experience of burnout? Oh, hugely. Um, the, the misalignment is um, a big one in that um, one of the, the skills in the book that I do on a fairly regular basis, probably every few months, is the, the values check-ins. Because mm. I find a lot of people who um, come along to therapy and don't can't, can't articulate really what the problem is. They mm. kind of say, I don't really know what's going on. It just feels where yeah, mm. nothing feels sort of um, meaningful or um, I don't, yeah, I don't feel satisfied with my life. Often those situations become really um, clear once you do a values check-in. So it's often when people have been pulled away from the things that me matter to them and mean a lot <laughs> to them by other things in life. Mm. So, and it's a really simple task. You'll often get, you can do it in different ways, but you can just get a pen and paper and you you write out the different areas of your life. So you might have like family, um, intimate relationships, parenting, friendships, health, career, lifelong learning, creativity, whatever. Put them all on the page and you kind of um, ask yourself, what are the things that matter to me most in this area of my life? So not what you want to happen to you, but how you want to show up in that area of your life, good or bad times. So what you want to bring and what you want to contribute, the attitude you want to have, that kind of thing. You might have a few words or sentences, bullet points, and then you can kind of rate, okay, out of 10, how important are these values to me in this area of my life? And then rate it again on how much you feel you're living in line with that at the moment, so in the last couple of weeks. And, and then you get these two scores and you get to kind of look across the page, all the different areas of your life. And it's a really good indication of where to kind of direct your focus next. Because mm. if you've rated something as really highly important to you, but then your rating for how much you're living in line with that is like two out of 10, 
there's a disparity there that needs your attention. And it might, you know, it's not um, it's not a path for like self-loathing. It's just because it, often it's because something else has pulled you away from it. You know, you might be doing really well with another area of your life. And and it's not that you can do them all perfectly all of the time. It's that you probably have to, you know, spin from one to another at each point. You know, you can't, um, you know, uh, I guess the work parenting thing is a, a really obvious one that it's really difficult to kind of be the parent that you want to be all of the time and have the career that you want to have all of the time. And yeah. so there's a, a sort of um, ping ponging between the two. But just doing one of those exercises, if you're not feeling um, sort of satisfied or if you're feeling burnt out, it's often an indication that you've just sort of been shifted away from something and you're not okay with that. Mm. So it's a sign to shift back. Nice. So like... So you've got the different areas of life. And so in that, like, for example, in the family parenting category, mm. are you asking yourself, like, what are the values that are most important to me? Like being there for my kids and like picking them up from school and stuff. Yeah. And then you rate how important those things are to you and then how much you're actually living. Yeah, that, that was a that was a big thing for me um, as everything got busier and busier with all this stuff. that um, I could feel myself just feeling a bit overwhelmed and, and sort of had a look at it on the page. And yeah, being present as a parent was really important to me. But I'd obviously spent a long time locked in the office re writing the book and and then doing all these podcasts and stuff and 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 I recognised that I I needed to shift back to being present more of the time to to be okay with that balance and um, but I, I think I've talked about this before that I I think often people have this misconception that balance is like finding the perfect sweet spot where you've just like you know, won the game or whatever. And yeah. you, you know, you've got it all right and everything's good in your life. And I just don't think it ever happens like that. I think, you know, if you're sort of on a balancing beam, uh, the process of balancing is a constant shifting from like one side to another. And as you notice you're tilting too much one way, you kind of shift to tilt the other way and counterbalance. And, and, and I just think life is a bit like that. And, mm. um, so there's, you know, um, like I'm, I'm here today and I'm not with my, my kids today, but, we're going off um, uh, as a family at the end of the week. So I know that I can, you know, it's a little bit of a shift one way or the other. And and um, I think that's okay. I think because um, you tend to, I think other parents will probably relate to this that you just feel guilty whatever you do. But once you recognize balance to be that constant shifting and rebalancing, um, it becomes slightly easier, I think. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I guess the way I, I, I see this is like, Ideally, I would, so in in my mind, I, I, I sort of have a, an idea of like, what does my ideal day look like? But I'm not massively attached to that because the day that, you know, stuff happens. And I also have in my mind, like, what does is, what is the ideal week look like? Mm. Like in an ideal week, I'd like to do, I don't know, one or two date nights or like one dinner with friends on average or like see my mum and grandma once a week and like go to the gym three times a week. Yeah. And by mapping that out on like a Google calendar that I call my ideal week calendar, I can just see that, okay, cool, like this is. This is my ideal kind of life. And obviously, I end up n like never actually living my ideal week. But just knowing what it is and like helps yeah. me be like, okay, you know, for the last two weeks, I've been to the gym like once a week. Let's just do a little rebalancing there because yeah. actually, I do know that this is important to me and it's the thing that I want to do. Therefore, let's do the thing. So I really like the idea of sort of like balancing that. this beam and constantly shifting and adjusting. I've always liked your idea of the kind of the ideal week and the ideal day and that kind of thing. And because mm. you can kind of aim towards it and and it's key, isn't it, to be okay with not uh, creating it in full? Yeah. 
uh, but but always aiming towards, always having an ideal to aim towards, but also then shifting into kind of gratitude for the week that you ended up having. Yeah. That that as as life goes, it you probably could have had a worse week. Yeah. You know, even though you didn't go to the gym five times or whatever mm. it was. So um, it's a really nice mental shift to sort of aim towards that ideal week mm. and to have the chance to do that even, you know, um, or to aim towards an ideal week within the limitations of someone's life. So yeah. it might be currently you hate your job, but your ideal week would then be um, to be doing some night course in something else because that's part of your mission to get out of this job you hate or yeah. uh, whatever that is. And so your idea of the ideal week would change as time went on as well, wouldn't it? So um, and I, they'd have kind of keep coming back to it and um, yeah. That's nice. Um, we've got a question from Nurgisa in our audience who says, when you study your work for long periods of mind, uh, sorry, when you study your work for long periods of time, what are some ways in which you can take care of your mental health? Um, when you're when you're studying. Yeah, studying, yeah, or working for long periods of time. Okay. Um, I guess to not do it for long periods of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to take breaks is kind of obvious, isn't it? But but it is, the reason people say it is because it is the right answer. Yeah. You know, that um, if if you've got a stretch, and that's what, you know, that's why I learned the hard way on when I began that I was working as if I wasn't going to do it for a long stretch of time and it became a long stretch of time. So I realized that wasn't possible. Yeah. Um, and now I've made that shift to having a much better balance um, and adding in other parts of life, like, you know, socializing or exercising or taking yeah. a break and sleeping and stuff like that. Um, so you kind of, it's it's acknowledging, okay, if this is a marathon, what do I need to put in along the way that's going to ensure I get to the end of this? And for different people, that might be different things. Um, but generally it includes, you know, the basics like social contact, good food, mm. um, moving your body and sleeping. If you can get those down, you're more likely to get to the end. Um, yeah. If you're sacrificing on any of those, it's going to make it much harder to get to the end. So it mm. um, might sound like an obvious answer, but I think those those basics or the things that we call the basics are the first things we let slide when we're not doing so good. Yeah. You know, if you've got a big project on, well, okay, I'll just get these four hours sleep and then I'll crack on and I'll, yeah. and I'll do that again tomorrow and um, I'll just grab a takeaway. And, you know, it's so easy to just um, see those things as uh, negotiable, I think. Um, so, mm. that yeah, I think the best thing you can do is prioritize those and recognize how much they impact your ability to keep going and your stamina. Mm. Um so that you can not do them, not do them perfectly, but just keep aiming towards them, a bit like your ideal day. Yeah, yeah. I really like the idea of think tr tr treating things like marathons, because I think you know one one question I sometimes ask is that if if the way I lived I lived today was how I would li I live every day, mm. how do I feel about that? And if the answer to to for too many days in a row is like that would be terrible, then I think okay, cool. This is this, you know it's time for a, for a readjustment. And usually, for me, I find that a work because it's fun and energizing. It's like, oh, things are growing, and blah 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 blah. Will then eat into things like exercise and healthy eating 
and sleep because it'll be like 11 p.m. and I'll be like, oh, but like I'm really excited about this book that I'm reading. Let me just, you know, and yes, I've got an 8 a.m. breakfast meeting with someone the next day, which I'm also really excited about, but like, oh, and then so sleep ends up being the thing that gives. Yeah. And I think once in a while, whatevs, but like when it happens over a long enough period of time, it's like, oh, let's actually, you know, take care of ourselves here. Yeah, it just makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And something like sleep, the impact is almost instant, mm-hmm. right? You, it's the very next day, you will feel better if you've had more of it. Yeah. So, um, it's it's not like um, you have to wait a long time for the results of that. So, it is it is a great thing to kind of prioritize if if you notice, and it's probably it is one of the first things we'll look at. You know, if someone is returning to therapy for example because they notice their mood is slipping or the you know going downhill you get those basics back on track yeah. and sometimes that's enough because they are so powerful you know they're the reason that you know things like uh, your ability to move sleep eat well and have social connection they're weapons of war right you know mm-hmm. if you've got a prisoner of war the way you break them is by messing around with those things so let's not do it voluntarily to ourselves every day yeah. um let's just keep trying to you know, if we've had a few late nights, let's just put anyone in there and see if we can kind of mm. redirect. Yeah, I find that for me, having like clear rules in place for stuff is like remarkably helpful. Like knowing that Thursday night is always a date night. Or for example, knowing that, okay, I am not going to arrange any meetings before like 10 a.m. or so, you know, th- mm. things like that, where I know that if I actually stuck to these rules, it would almost force some kind of balance in my life mm. so that I don't have to think about it. So I think about it and someone messages me and it's like, oh, the calendar's full, but the only time is like a 7 a.m. breakfast. I know in that moment I'll be tempted to be like, hell yeah. But I know that when it comes down to it, I'll get five hours of sleep that night and then yeah. that would not be good Yeah. in the long, in the long run. Yeah. So I, I, I like to keep an eye on these basics and just think, okay, like what are the, what are the rules? Yeah. And now that I have the privilege of having a team uh, and run my own business and it's like cool how do i automate the how do i automate the adherence to the rules so that i don't have to think about it yeah like asking my assistant to be like can you just make sure the calendar they're always three gym sessions and while we're there can we book a personal trainer for them so that i feel compelled to go and while we're there can we just not have any meetings after like 11 a.m or like whatever the whatever the thing might be Yeah. yeah and i think like different people have different levels of control over their time and their day but to whatever extent possible having rules that force balance on your life i think you know to answer this person's question is the way that you take care of your physical and mental health while you're working for long periods of time. Because to be honest, the 15th hour of work is probably going to be not that productive. And I think students yeah. in particular get themselves into this thing of like, oh my God, it's so important. Like, you know, to to, to, to your point around how we probably don't even remember our GCSE and A-level a, a results anymore because yeah. no one really cares. But when yeah. you're a student, it's like, oh shit, this is like the most important thing in the world because my whole life is dependent on all these. And Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting isn't that when you mentioned about kind of that tendency to like... um uh you're you're feeling tired and you're feeling that exhaustion but the tendency is to squash it and ignore it in order to do a little bit more like mm. if you're studying or whatever and you've got exams and 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 that extra stuff that you did probably wasn't that productive or helpful because you were exhausted and not concentrating and lacked focus but you still forced yourself to sit in the chair and and endure being there so that you'd done your i don't know 10 hours of revision or whatever yeah. it is um and so i think there's a shift towards us kind of listening to our bodies a bit more and just acknowledging that tiredness isn't pathological (laughs) it's your body letting you know it needs something rest and replenishment or you know fuel or whatever it is hydration um and that it's okay to listen to your body 
it doesn't mean you're kind of opting out of hustle culture or you know you're going to send your career down the pan it's it, it's sustainability and mm. and um the marathon thing isn't it nice um final question um a bunch of people in our podcast community uh, asked around how like if someone is if someone else that they know if if someone that we know is struggling with a mental health or seems to be struggling with a mental health or seems to be struggling in some way yeah what are some ways to approach that situation in a way that's like tactful and nice and not too like getting involved in other people's business if they yeah to? um i think that the the sort of trap that we tend to fall into is is often for the most well-meaning people because we we desperately don't want to say the wrong thing so we say nothing yeah and uh, we maybe even avoid that person right we try to grace them with grace them with our absence right and say oh, i'll just stay away because they've got a lot going on and and i'll probably put my foot in it and say the wrong thing or um and actually mostly what people don't need is someone to come along and solve an unsolvable problem they need some human connection and someone to be there and mm. um and to have their back and be by their side and show that it matters to them if they're not okay um but often we we don't buy into that as helpful we think we need to step in and solve the problem um so you know often when people are saying you know what should i do what should i say and and it's it's less about what you do and what you say and it's more about how you make that person feel so and not by taking away their distressed feelings but by adding in a sense of connection and um letting them know that someone has their back and cares for them mm. is hugely supportive so you know if um if i'm working with someone who is grieving for example you can't take grief away no one can um you know magic you out of that um but often those people will say that the the friends that they not that they value the most but that have been most helpful to them aren't necessarily even the ones that come along and start talking about the grief and and opening everything up they can also be the friends who come along and say let's go for a dog walk once a week together and and on that in that time maybe you discuss the the latest show you've been watching or um you know some comedy thing you went to see or you know uh, it's complete distraction from your pain mm. that's just as valuable if you're that person right if you're the friend who doesn't know how to open up those things and talk about them it's okay to uh, talk about something else and and be you know sometimes people can be so grateful for that mm. um but you're still connecting with that person yeah. so you're still saying good times or bad I'm next to you and we'll walk through it together. So, um, but equally it's, it's okay to just ask that person, you know, how how can I support you? I re it, it really matters to me if you're not okay and I want to be here for you. I have no idea how to do that right. So let me know if, if I'm getting it wrong, steer me in the right direction for what you need and I won't take it personally. I'll just take your direction. And then you've already kind of just named the elephant in the room and 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 your own insecurities about how to help you know, I'm I'm really scared about saying the wrong thing. So let me know if I if I do that, and I will adjust. Mm. And and it just takes the fear and out of the whole situation. Everyone can name what it is, um, and then you can just get to work with connecting with someone, and and then support comes out of that. I think you don't have to be the therapist. Nice. I think that's a great place to end this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are gonna be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.